and you say, John, that's simple, it's easy to make, and I would say that's false. Um, sometimes the simplicity of it makes people who aren't accustomed to dealing with both the coffee and the water and how pure it needs to be, the temperature that it needs to be, how fine the grind of the coffee needs to be. It's people that aren't, yo, yo, I haven't started preaching, but I see a few folks here. It's the simplicity of it that makes folks think it's easy, I've got it, and they really don't. Um, I only bring that up because um, Christianity is a very simple message. But simple doesn't mean easy. Simple often means easy to mess up. As you think of Christianity and what it entails, there's only two ingredients. There's the content of this good news, the claims that God makes. And then a call, an action that he calls you and I to do, a way that we are to respond. Here's the content, right? So, regardless of if you've grown up in church or haven't grown up in church, Christian or not, people are familiar with the content of the message, right? There's a good God who made his creation good. His creation chose not to be led by God, but they wanted to lead themselves. That's what we call sin. And as a result of their sin, things spiraled out of control and they needed somebody to save them, right? So the content is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. Simple. But then it comes with a call, and one of the the call was one here that we saw here in this text as we read. John the Baptist comes out, and his very first words are an imperative, an action for people to do. And the first word that he'll use is repent. Simple. But while the content is, is clear, I think it's the response, repentance, what that means that starts to get a little cloudy. And here's what I mean by that. Um, uh, you walk into any room and what you'll find out is that there's a bunch of different types of folks in the room, especially in the church. You'll have people that may, you may be somebody that has, has found yourself here in the church and you know John, I'm not doing spiritually well. I need to change things. I need help. And you may have walked in here saying, I need help. Help, instruct, and advise me. And you may hear the word repent and be very willing but misunderstand what the Bible means by that word. So you may try to do too much. You may feel like, Oh, what, what it means to repent is I have to fix up everything that's wrong in my life. I've got to trade my bad habits for good ones and, and really, really try hard. And you'll spend your time trying hard, spinning your wheels, and you will not experience the blessing that's supposed to come from that word. It's going to feel like a burden to you. Well, there's some here and you hear the claims of Christianity and you hear the word repent. And you may not do too much. You may do too little. And you may think that repentance just means I I, I just need to feel bad and say sorry. And you find yourself using that word, but then as you look at your life, your life hasn't changed. And you may not feel burdened by 
Christianity, but you don't quite feel the assurance that you and God are on good terms. You see what I mean? It's a simple message, but it can be cloudy. There's some of us that are willing, but we just don't understand. Um, Can you all put this clock on? If I don't have it, it's going to be a very long day. Um, There's some of us that are willing, but don't quite understand. But then what we find out, is there some of us in here that understand completely, but we're not willing? Right, so we moved into the West End here years ago and bought our house for a price. And in the course of the past few years, as things have changed, our home value has gone up. So we constantly get calls from folks saying, we want to buy your house for this much. And what I'm saying is, I know exactly what you're offering. And you say that there's this payoff. But for me to give you my house, I would have to lose control of my house, and I'm just not sure that your payoff is worth that. We know clearly when the Bible says to repent that God is saying, hey, I want you to lose control of your whole life, and here's the payoff, and we say, I I think I'm good with what I have. I don't want to lose what I've got. So this very simple message can get cloudy. And I think what this text does for us today is it just kind of clears out that cloudy water. What I love about the gospel of Matthew is that as Matthew is writing, painting this picture of Jesus, Matthew is writing primarily to Jews or he's writing to people that are in the Bible Belt. He's writing to a group of folks that would find themselves in a church on Sunday, spending all of their time trying to do good and not do bad, people that would think that they're on good terms with God. And Matthew is presenting a picture that says, hey, for all of y'all that thought that this thing was simple and it was easy, I want to paint this picture of Jesus to help you see, I think you've misunderstood what he's actually called you to. We spend a lot of time wrestling with Christ's words. And what I love about this is we're in the third chapter and it's going to be the first time that Jesus actually says anything here in this book. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to start off and say, hey, the most important thing that you have to wrestle with is who Jesus is. That if he is who he says that he is, then when he speaks, you have to listen. But if he's not who he says he is, then who cares what he says? But we can't claim that he is who we think that he is, God's son, and say, but I disagree and still want to do my own thing. You just can't do that. So his point is trying to say, all right, Jesus is who he says that he is. And with a word like repentance, sometimes it can feel estranging, exclusive, or it's like trying to push folks out. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I think that this text is trying to get at, and that's this. Listen, for everybody in here, unequivocally, God is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. And repentance is your RSVP. 
God's extended an open invitation and repentance when you hear that word to turn. That's, that's your RSVP. That's how you say, I want to get in. Now I can look out and see there's some of y'all with furrowed brows, so I'm going to spend my time and try to explain. One thing that you find in communication is as you talk, there's something that you have on your head that you share, and then if you look on the face and somebody doesn't seem to um, give you the response that you want, then you say, maybe we, we need to take some steps and show you how that's true. And so this is the main point. God is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. Repentance is the way that you RSVP um, this story is filled with three main types of people. People who know themselves to be sinners, people who are self-righteous, and one person that's perfect. This message of repentance that John preaches if you know yourself in here to be a sinner, it's a message of great comfort. Sinners are comforted by hearing the word repent. I'll show you how that pans out. It says this, look here in verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think we're going to see this in at least four ways. One, as John talks to people about repentance, look at what comes at the end of it. Right? We tend to think when we hear that word repent or else, we think repent is how you lead the way into a hellfire and brimstone, turn or burn. John saying, no, no, listen, repent because there's an invitation that's gone out. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And when, when he says come near, he means near in the sense at the end of the gospel when Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed and Judas and the rest of the guys that are going to kill him or steps from him, what he says to the group is, get up, my betrayers are near. Not we have to wait for this long time. They are right around the corner. So as John saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying, listen, God has broken into the world in the person of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. That new beginning that you long for or hope for, it's, it's close and here's how you get in. This is not a secret party that John is passing out invitations to, hoping that the people that he didn't invite don't see him. He's shouting it, telling folks to come close. It's a message of comfort for sinners. That's verse 2. Here's how we know it's a message of comfort for sinners. Look down at verse 4. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild Honey, verse 5, and people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. As John is preaching, what you have is everybody is attracted and they're drawn. Droves are flocking to hear this. People do not come in droves like that to hear hellfire and brimstone sermons. They're coming in droves because they're, 
they're comforted by something that he's saying, not just that. Verse 4 goes into great lengths to describe what he's wearing. It's as crazy then as it would be if somebody walked in right now with that outfit. He's in the wilderness. There's nothing out there. So what they want us to see is the only thing that is drawing people there is not the attractiveness of the messenger, but the attractiveness of the message. There's something that their hearts are comforted by. And more than that, when they come out to be baptized by him, verse 6 is going to say, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, look, confessing their sins. What do they do when they come? They confess their sins. There's two things that would make you voluntarily confess. You got caught and there's no way out. Die, you you caught me. Or you haven't been found out, but you found that there's mercy for the guilty. A few years ago, I got a ticket as I... um, I allegedly came to a rolling stop (laughs) at a stop sign. So I go to court and I sit there and as they go through all the folks, I started to see this trend. Everybody that tried to justify themselves in the sight of the judge, the judge wasn't buying their story and gave them the full punishment. But everybody that said, y'all, I rolled through the stop sign. He gave them leniency. So when it came to my time, I could have argued, debated. I could have called the cop to come to court and postpone the date so that he would have came here. But I just said, I did it. (laughs) And he gave me mercy. What John is doing here is saying, no, listen, repentance is not meant to drive you away. It's your RSVP. It's the ticket that you show at the front gate. John goes on, and there's lots in this text to explain, but uh, what, what he's going to do here in verse 3, right, it says this, For he is the one spoken of through Isaiah the prophet who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare for the Lord, make his path straight. This is why uh, your whole Bible is important for you to know. You go to the book of Isaiah, and what you find out is that book is split into two halves. The first half, chapter 1 through 39, is all about the conflict. God has conflict with his people because they don't want him to rule. And they are receiving the punishment for that conflict. They got in a conflict with God, and they've lost. Isaiah 40 starts off, and it's this message of hope. And so just hear these words in verse 1. It says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak to them tenderly and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her sin has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And then it talks about this voice, somebody, right? So what? this says is that here's how you're going to know when God's coming. Somebody's going to cry out in the wilderness and announce that God's going to come. The wilderness is significant in the Bible because when God set Israel free from their bondage, what he does is he takes them through the Jordan or he takes them through the Red Sea 
He baptizes them, takes them from one side of the sea to the next. And in the wilderness, he creates this people that are his. So what God does is he sends somebody in the wilderness, but not just anybody. What they have is this guy that's in the wilderness. What's he wearing? uh, Yeah, 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 camel skin. Yeah, it's right there. Camel skin, leather belt around his waist. Again, this probably doesn't mean much to us uh, because we're unfamiliar with our Bibles. 2 Kings 1.8 says this. They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. One thing that you know is that Elijah is one of the most famous prophets in the Bible. Your Old Testament ends before 400 years of silence with Malachi saying this in 4.5. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day that the Lord comes. So let me break this down. What John is wearing is the prophet starter kit, right? So picture, picture you leave out of this door right now, or I tell you, hey, on the corner of RDA and Stokes, there's a guy with high water black pants, white socks, black shoes, a red jacket, sparkling gloves, and he's singing. You say, I know that's not Michael, but it's somebody that's trying to make me think of him. When Elijah's out here in the desert, what they're saying is, I know it's not Elijah because he's dead, but it's somebody that's trying to make me think of him. And as he's professing this hope, listen, in the wilderness, do you know what his main point is? That this hope, this change, is not going to come from the religious and the political centers of the world that we live in. There is an entire world that is looking for a deliverer to come inside the city. But what this is saying is, no, no, listen, we as people of God don't look for hope where the rest of people look for hope. We as people of God know that we serve a God that doesn't just bring a savior into the world from through a high-class family, but through the lowest of low, through a virgin-born lady, God brings hope out of dead ends. So when we find ourselves up against the dead end, we say it's fine because this is how God brings out his hope anyways. So it's John saying repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming near what he's saying. This is a message of hope. And here's what you see, a group of people being baptized. Now, we have to go back here and say, well, why would they be baptized, right? Their baptism was not the same as ours. If you lived in this day and age and you were a Jew, Jews didn't get baptized. Do you know who got baptized? Gentiles who wanted to identify with the people of God. It was a rite that was meant for outsiders to abandon their old way of life and to come in. Israel was baptized with Moses as they crossed the Red Sea. So they thought of themselves as insiders, but John's going to come in and he's going to say, hey, listen, everybody that finds themselves in church, nobody's an insider. 
When it comes to this hope that God is trying to bring, nobody's an insider. Nobody has an, an advantage. If you think of yourself as an insider, you're actually on the outside. Everybody's got to come into this door in the same way. So he's clarifying this call that repentance, listen, is much more than trading your bad habits for good ones. It's much more than saying, God, I made a mistake. Help me make the right decision. Repentance is saying the problem was not with the choices that I made. The problem was I was the one making all of the choices. So in abandoning and baptizing themselves, they're all saying in hopes that this hope is really what you say that it is. I'm willingly going to confess my sin and say I no longer want to lead my life. Repentance, y'all, is radical. It's much more than being sorry. It's changing the entire direction of your life. The great theologian once said, I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. That theologian was Winnie the Pooh. Um, The good news about this is that it blows up any categories that you and I have of insiders and outsiders. God is proclaiming this invitation for any and everybody. I wonder if you hear all of this when you hear the word repent. I wonder if you think of hope when you hear the word repent. I wonder if the people that you talk to about Christianity hear hope when they hear the word repent. It's not a condemnation. It's an invitation. It's the way that you and I return the RSVP. It's good news. And those that know themselves to be sinners return that RSVP. But like I said, there's two groups here. There's a group that's comforted those that think of themselves as outsiders. But then there's going to be a group that's confronted. Those that think of themselves to be insiders. Look here at verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, look, coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. You can tell a whole lot about the content of what somebody's going to say by how they start. And so here's what takes place. There's this group of folks that are lined up around the block, around the clock, waiting for this baptism, this hope, right? It's like a a few blocks from here. There's this vegan restaurant where people for months have been standing in line for hours waiting to get in and you drive by and look and you say like what's like cars stop and wait and there's something special that goes on there. But for those of y'all that know me, if you saw me loitering around there, you would say, well, I know John. I know John to be a man of principles when it comes to um, meat. I know that John wouldn't be the type of guy to wait in line for that. As John looks 
at the Pharisees and Sadducees. These group of folks that are kind of the two branches of the religious system at play in that day and time. John looks at them and says, y'all ain't the type of people to want to come and partake of this goodness. Y'all are loitering to spectate, to do something. And what he does, listen to this. He doesn't woo them or invite them in the same way. Sinners are comforted when they hear the word repent. But when those that are self-righteous hear that word, it requires a confrontation. So the first words that he's going to use are this brood of vipers. We don't speak that way, so we don't really know what that means. What a brood is is seedlings, offspring. Vipers are snakes. So what he says is use seeds of snakes. It's important because when Adam and Eve fall, they fall in the garden to a serpent. God promises that one day he's going to fix things in the world by sending the seed of the woman to crush the head of the seed of the snakes. So when John here says what Jesus does later, he looks at these people, listen, who live these morally upright lives, and what he says is y'all are self-righteous, but he calls them, y'all aren't seed of of God, y'all are seeds of the snake. Y'all are children of the devil. How's that for a confrontation? So what he says is, look, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. He's saying, y'all have talked about Christianity being this. Y'all have talked about being right with God, that y'all assume that y'all are on good terms. And he's saying, but if you look at the fruit that your life produces, what you find out is y'all aren't. And so what he says is, man, y'all have to live like the profession that you made. Verse 9, look, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for or as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So what he's saying is, y'all assume that you're good, but you shouldn't. And look here at verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. For people that know themselves to be sinners, John is saying, repent, God's kingdom is near. For people that are self-righteous, what he's saying is repent because this judgment is just as near. It's this warning. What he brings up here with the picture is the wrong way that people think of assessing their spiritual condition. You have a group of people, listen, who are relying or trusting in the heritage that they came from. They were Israelites, so they were genetically born from Abraham, and they felt that his righteousness was vicariously passed on to him. 
Listen, Matthew is writing for people that grew up in church. So it is those that would say, of course I'm good with God. I was baptized at six years old. I, you know, I was born, I was raised in the church. No, no, I've done all the good things. No, no, I, no, no, I, I, I tithe, I, I, I don't cuss, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal. And what he's saying is, listen, there's so much more to assessing your spiritual condition than just what you did in the past. It's what fruit is your life producing Right now, and this is more of a danger for those of us that grew up in the South and grew up in church all of our lives. Because we can imagine that repentance is trading bad habits for good ones. And as soon as we get the good ones, then we think that we're on good terms with God. But that's not the case at all. It would be like this. Uh, Imagine planting a tree. You go to the store, you buy seeds. The pack says orange seeds. You plant the tree, take care, you plant the seeds, you take care of it. A few months go by and thorns grow up. There's two conclusions that you you can come to. Man, this soil is terrible. I put in orange seeds in the ground and it's because of the soil that it's and that it transformed these seeds. Or what you can say is, I know the package said orange seeds, but thorns grew up. I may have bought a counterfeit package. Listen, the same is true with our faith. We can look back and say, no, 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 no. No, I prayed that prayer one time at camp. You know, I paid my tithes. I've done all of this thing. And the thorns that grow up, no, no, it's just because you don't know my life. You don't know the soil that I've been in. And And what you'll do is make all kinds of excuses for the fruit that's produced, all kinds of reasons, but but we don't grasp that, listen, our circumstances in our life, hear this, they do not cause sin. Circumstances give shape to our sin, but they don't cause it. Or fruit start, if thorns start to grow up, then we could say, no, no, listen, We live in a world where counterfeit things are produced all of the time. And people buy things and don't get what they hoped for. And what we found is that Satan, the enemy of our souls, doesn't just get people to turn away from God by turning to sin. But he gets them to turn away from God by turning to religion. To trying to do the right things. And it's this counterfeit practice and so listen John is warning this group and us that some of us here may have lived our whole lives sincerely trying to do good but we put our trust in the wrong thing and you may be here right now and say this you may not say it out loud but you may feel ah that's me But if I change now and I admit now that at 30 years old that I never really knew God, what do people think of me? Yeah, what do my kids think? What do my parents think? And do you know what all of those questions are starting to reveal? That the respect of people was the kingdom that you've lived for. That you're trying to establish a righteousness 
that'll give you the respect of people instead of embracing one that'll drive you to the wilderness because it's, it's worth it. And so listen, as John is warning this group, please don't hear a warning as an absence of love. It is not an absence of love. Right? People that are already awake and see their sin and see where they've fallen off, they can be wooed in by the love of Christ. But if somebody is asleep on a sinking ship, it is not loving to not disturb their sleep, to go talk to them gently and quietly. The most loving thing that you can do is to violently wake them up and say, you're sleeping, you think that you're good, but you're not. In verse 11, John's going to switch gears and talk about Christ. And he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. Look, I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. What he, back there in that day, it was slaves that removed their sandals. And what he's saying, Christ is coming. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Hear the humility of John who had droves of people coming to hear what he says. He goes on and says this, look, he himself will baptize you Listen, with the Holy Spirit and fire, what does that mean? I think what he says is this. He's going to endow us with his spirit of God. He's going to give this good gift. But this fire is going to be this purifying fire, this one that clears out. I think this because of verse 12. It says this. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that... Never goes out. I promise I'm going to explain this quick because I think we've done a lot of explaining. Back in the day, here's how you got the goodness out of wheat. Wheat was right there. It would come in this chaff. The chaff was light. The wheat was heavy. You would beat the wheat with the shovel. You would throw it up into the air. The good stuff would drop down. The wind would would blow away all of the chaff. Then what you would do is you would take the chaff and you would burn it, right? Chaff is light, it's thin, it's like paper. If you've ever lit paper on fire, it burns really, really quick. Look here at the end of verse 12, though. But the chaff that he will burn with fire that never goes out. Paper goes out quickly. It's talking about this eternal fire because it's talking about this judgment that this God of love will bring, all right? And now I bring all of that as it talks about the dual ministry of Jesus because Hear this. It is not unloving for God to judge sin violently. Listen, God was a king who created the entire world as his kingdom and invited people to come in. Adam and Eve, like the rest of us, chose to do our own thing, and we said, we don't want to be a part of your kingdom. We want to set up our own kingdom. God has already proven he can create and set up shop out of nothing. But if his kingdom is really going to come into the world, what he has to do is displace the kingdom that's already there. If a kingdom has been set up, and its aim is to woo us, say, no, what's, what's more important than God's thoughts of you or how 
people see you. What's important than what's more important than God's love is the love of a partner. What's more important than God's pleasure is the pleasure that you get when you advance in your job. There are these competing forces, and what he's saying is that Jesus is going to come in and set up his kingdom on top of that one, but in order to build it up, he's got to tear something down. And what John's trying to do is he's just trying to listen, to wake them up, and I want you to hear this. What I'm not saying is preach people into the kingdom by scaring them about hell. We were in the uh, uh, next building this past week, and as we talked through this text, Shannon Christian said, John, you know, as I read this, I'm reminded that uh, you cannot want hell and still not want God. So what he's not just saying is convert people by saying, if you don't, they're going to go to hell. What John's trying to do, hear this, for those that are self-righteous, he's just trying to wake them up. Look at Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And do you know what takes place? He experiences the foolishness of trying to live life on his own. And then it says this, and he came to his senses. He woke up. And then once he was woke up, as he felt the weight of what his life would bring him, that's when he could experience God's love. And so here's where this story ends. Listen. God's bringing his kingdom into the world. Repentance is our RSVP. Sinners are comforted by that truth. The self-righteous are confronted and they're woken up so that we all can see this. Look, Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our covering. Here's what I mean by that. Go to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. So John comes in and says, yo, listen, all these folks have been baptized and they're confessing their sins. They're being baptized as a sign that they want to repent of their sins. John's saying, Jesus, you're here and I know who you are. You don't have any sins to confess. You don't have anything to be repent of. So why are, why are you getting baptized by me? And hear what Christ says. Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus comes, Jesus condescends and accepts a baptism that he really didn't need. And what he gets at the end is this unique picture. Prophets were sent into the world to point about how it is that you get to God. John, the ultimate prophet, points to Christ and says he's the true prophet. Priests were there to relate to, uh, 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 to stand in between men and God, to, to bring the peace of God on men. When this dove comes down on him, it's reminiscent of Genesis 8 after God judges the world to establish his 
kingdom, the sign that God is at peace with man is a rainbow, but a dove that descends. This dove comes on Jesus showing that God's peace rests on him. God, the ultimate king, looks down on his son and says this, yo, this is my son. This is the heir to the throne. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king there. And so you ask, what does he mean by we needed to do this to fulfill all righteousness? That word righteousness, it, it also can be used to describe faithfulness, justice. What he's saying is we need to do this in order for God to fulfill his promise here on earth. And again, Isaiah 63, I'm going to take you all there. It's going to be here on the screen. Listen to this. 63:19. it says this. We have become like those you never ruled, like those who didn't bear your name. 64.1 says this. They say, God, we have been like the people that were outsiders. We can't fix ourselves. The prayer in Isaiah 64.1 is this. God, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down. What Jesus does, he's baptized and he gets up. And what it says is that the heavens were torn open. The spirit of God rests on him and God came down in Jesus. And Jesus being baptized because, or, because he didn't have to. What he's essentially saying is I'm going to step into this Jordan River. And for those of y'all that know anything about the Jordan, it is nasty water, right? I grew up in Houston, um, and we have a beach, Galveston. Um, I've been to Miami, and they have a beach. The water in Miami is not like the Galveston. It's, it's not like the Gulf of Mexico. The Jordan is nasty, polluted water. Jesus steps into this nasty and polluted water, not because he has to be washed of anything, but to identify with those of us who do have to be washed of things. And then as he gets up, what he's going to do through the rest of this book is he is going to embrace the mantle as the representative representative for Israel, which means this, he's going to cover for us. His performance is going to be applied to us. Here's what that means. 16 years old, my very first job was Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese, I was a game tech. I was special. I didn't wear the red shirt like the rest of them wore. I wore a striped shirt to show that I was official. Kids with the games, listen to me. There would be times that I would get sick, and in being sick, I couldn't go to work. Because I was 16, so skipped a lot of days of work. And so what that meant was they were like, John, you can't leave us hanging again or you're fired. So I had a lot of my homies work with me, and so there would be times where I would call, and one of my dear friends, Matt, was so responsible at 16. Matt was not a game tech. Matt worked at the kids' check. He had the red shirt. But in order to fill in for me, do you know what Matt had to do? Matt had to come to my house and get baptized, put on my game tech shirt, 
and going to work. He covered for me. Matt was responsible. He did my job in a way that I could not. Matt was faithful. He earned the pleasure and the favor of my boss. Matt had already worked a bunch, so when he went into work for me, he got paid overtime. Because of his responsibility, when Matt came in and worked for me, Matt got promoted before I did, and I worked there longer than he did. And do you know what Matt did with all that stuff that he got for being responsible? Matt kept it. Matt kept the paychecks. Matt didn't share them with me. Do you know what Jesus does with all of the favor that he gets from God, with all of the promotion, with all of these words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? The reason why he's baptized on the front is to show that he's going to dip into a pool that he didn't earn so that you and I can be raised up to a life that we didn't earn. So as he walks and lives the way that you and I judge, on what terms are we with God? God, are you and I on good terms? Are you mad at me? Do you hate me? That what we don't do is go through our life through the Rolodex of things that we've done and haven't done. What we do is say, God, there's a bunch of things that I've done and haven't done. But there was somebody that was baptized for me. There was somebody that identified for me. There's somebody that took my place. So when I think of how you view me, I don't look at my life and imagine what you would say. I look at Christ's life. And I look right here and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And everything that he says about Jesus is true of me. If I'm a part of his kingdom. And do you know the way that you get in? Is you say, without Jesus, I wouldn't be in. It's not just the bad choices that I've made. It's the fact that I was the one making all the choices. I'd much rather follow someone who already has what I've desperately tried to seek on my own. Do you want that? It's yours. I don't know who you are, where you've come from, or what your story or what your background has been, but there's an open invitation right now. Will you return the RSVP? Everything's laid out for you. Everything. It's been done. Do you want to enjoy this unique pleasure from God where you don't have to fret every night when you go to bed about how God feels about you? Do you want a new beginning? A fresh start? Jesus offers us something better. Not just a fresh start, but a sure ending. God's pleasure is yours. If you turn from your sin, 
and allow him to lead the way. That's why we worship. That's why we gather. That's why we pray. That's why we ask you to gather up with people so that when you don't feel that, they can draw you back in and remind you of the truths that are here. Let's pray. Let's respond. And let's worship. Our Father, we're grateful that you are our covering. We're grateful that when we come in week after week after week, we get to rejoice in the work that you've done. We don't have to spend our time lamenting the work that we haven't, Father. Help us to focus on you. And when our failures come into focus, I pray that we wouldn't stay there. But when they come into focus, help us to turn our eyes back towards you. I pray that you would guide us, that you would help to lead us, not by those who feel obligated to come to you, but those that are grateful for the price that you paid so that we know, Father, there's nothing that you've called us to give up that isn't absolutely worth it, Father. Uh, Would you fill us with the peace that surpasses understanding? Would you guide us to enjoy you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.